The thing that distracts me the most is people. If I see someone I want to go and have a chat with, I'd much rather be doing that than sitting at my desk doing some work. I am distracted by numerous things. The internet, um, my fidget spinner, plants and pruning them. The real thing that distracts me the most are my own thoughts. What distracts me most is probably doing stupid vacuous quizzes online. What kind of Brad are you? <laughs> what kind of Lord of the Rings character are you? You stuff like that. Tidying up, washing up, folding clothes, my hair, my outfits, my shoes. Obviously, like, everyone's kind of secretive about their distractions. But in reality, everyone does it. And I work in a massive office and you can see that every other person is also looking at, I don't know, like a clothes store. And weirdly actually assuring that it's like, oh, it's not just me that wastes time at work. Hello and welcome to Pi. This is a four-part series where we're trying to get to the bottom of why we, this rational human species that we think we are, why we think, feel and behave the way that we do. The reason we want to do this is because we want to better understand our own thought processes and the thought processes of others because that has been scientifically proven as therapeutic and great for our well-being. Joining me today as we delve deep, deep into the human psyche is psychologist and co-founder of The Positive Group, Dr. Brian Marion. Hello, Brian. Hi, Rick. Just remind me, Brian, Pi. Why are we calling this Pi? We're looking to develop psychologically informed environments. And I think if people can understand how their mind works, how their brain works, and have more insight into some of those variables, uh, I think it can be highly protective. And also saying, uh, welcome to psychologically informed environments. Just not as good as saying <laughs> welcome to Pi. Uh, each episode, we're going to be introducing a different emergent property that we all experience and looking at what it is, how it affects us, and crucially, how we can adjust it if necessary. In this episode, we're going to be looking at focus. So first things first, bit of a recap. What are we talking about when we say emergent property, Brian? Well, we're talking about sort of human characteristics, mm. the interaction between thoughts, cognition, uh, physiology, emotion, and behavior. One of the things that's happened in science over the last sort of 10 or 20 years is to recognize that things are not always linear. It's not always cause and effect. And when you have complex systems, and we are stonkingly complex, they often actually generate some unpredictable outcomes. And they do have what, what scientists call emergent properties. They follow patterns. But sometimes those patterns are not absolutely predictable. So not just simple linearity, as we might like. Absolutely. And focus is the emergent property on our agenda and the topic of today. But what exactly is focus? In this uh, context, we're talking about focus as a, as a tensional focus and what we're actually using our mind or our brain to, to focus on. And, and how large is our capacity for attention? Our ability to focus is relatively small. What's called our working memory or our, our RAM, if you like, our random access memory is quite small on a human level. So it's very difficult to do more than one thing at once. In fact, what I might do just to demonstrate this, Rick, is to get you to do a very simple 
cognitive task. No problem. And see if you can multitask. So here you are. What, what was your degree in? I uh, started off doing maths and then I changed because it was too hard to natural sciences, which was obviously a dot. Okay, well, let's do something mathematical because oh, you'll yes, be please. brilliant at that. So what I'm going to do is get you to do a little dementia test mm-hmm. where you do serial seven. So you subtract seven from 100. Yes. And I'd like you just to subtract seven from 100, then seven from that figure, seven from that figure. So it's called serial sevens. So I'd like you to kick off on your serial sevens. 100, 93, 86, And while you're doing that, I'd like you to synchronously count the number of fingers I'm holding up and create a cumulative total. 30. Oh, it's, oh, it's really difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult. I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely disgusted with myself there. I can't believe I'm, I, I, could, I didn't even, it's not that I started and then did it badly. It's I couldn't even quite figure out how to start. And if you'd said to me, will you be able to do that? I would have said, yes, of course I can, Brian. <laughs> and I think this is the issue around attentional focus is that our system two, our RAM has limited capacity. Uh, in fact, highly limited capacity. Our mm. real cleverness sits in system one. So if you're a chess grandmaster or a mathematician like yourself, you hold all this data and you actually don't need to think about it. It just comes up quite naturally. Uh, Just in case people have forgotten, Brian, uh, remind us what system one and system two are in the brain. So basically, system one is our great unconscious uh, and it's huge. It holds all the data. But system two is our working memory or our conscious thinking brain. And that has very limited capacity. That being said, you can do complicated things synchronously, provided they're automotive. So you can drive a car, which is a highly complicated manoeuvre, because you're very good at it and it's automatic, and have a very intellectual conversation. And so a focus determines what we're conscious of. To a large degree, yeah. Basically, our attention tends to get hijacked as human beings by things that are novel, by things that are colourful, by things that are moving. And if you think about a lot of advertising and apps is they use those concepts to pull us in. And our mind, when it's not focused, can go into what's called a default state where it's wondering. But when we're working, say when you're focusing on something, you actually go into what's called a central executive network. You're bringing your entire attentional focus to something. And it's very energy hungry. I mean, your brain weighs 5% of your body mass and it uses up about 20, 25% of your energy. And what's been shown is that concentrating uses up a lot more calories per minute than if you're relaxing. But another thing that uses up a lot of energy in the brain is switching your attention from one thing to the other. And so we tend to be cognitive misers, and we tend to allow system one to run the show unless it can't come up with an answer, when we have to then think about something and engage Bring in the big guns. Bring in the big guns. And then system two has to start thinking about it. Daniel Kahneman had this um, wonderful quote about thinking. He said, thinking is to humans like swimming is to cats. They can do it, but they don't particularly like it. And, And how does our mood affect the things that we give attention to? Because I'm kind of wondering if there's a bias produced by mood. If I'm feeling a bit antsy, am I then more likely to pay attention to things that are going to make me more antsy? Massively. And I think this is a really important part of the sort of concept of emotional literacy because I think, you know, when I'm angry, I notice things that irritate me. I scan the world for things that piss me off when I'm feeling angry. But I don't notice the things that give me joy and happiness. So our attention is distorted 
by our mood state. So our brains and behavior are driven by what we pay attention to. And in turn, what we pay attention to is dictated by our, our mood in part. Exactly. I'd say good focus is committing to the task at hand and not getting distracted by the, the fun things. I think good focus is good thought. Being rational. Good focus allows us to step back and think and then when we, we think we make better decisions. My focus is pretty whack. I get distracted quite quickly by like a fly or some chocolate or a, a chat with someone or, I don't know, some emojis. Uh, so I think focus is, focus is all about uh, just grafting and getting something done. I think I'm a bit of extremist when it comes to focusing because I have this ADD issue, which means that I'm just doing many, many different things and not really focusing on one. But then also I, I try and meditate and I do yoga and in those moments in my day, I have real focus and real awareness and calmness. I just think it's like swings and roundabouts for me. So that's what focus is, but I'd like to talk now about how it affects us and what role it plays in our overall well-being. I think, uh, I think taking anxiety is quite a good example. When, when we get anxious, as we touched on, you, know, you tend to notice things that make you worried. And we scan the, the world for things that may be threatening. And we're designed to focus on threat. In fact, threat is our biggest neurological circuit because being able to scan the world for threat is helpful in keeping us in the gene pool. But we also see ourselves as more vulnerable. We see the world as more dangerous and we see the future as more uncertain. So there's this cognitive change in how we're perceiving things, which makes us more anxious. But then feeling more anxious tends to create more distorted and spooky thoughts. And then more distorted and spooky thoughts can make us feel more anxious. And we can get caught in that circuit. So what's the relationship between attentional focus and success then, kind of success in tasks? One very famous study was done by Walter Mischel uh, in, back in the 70s. And this was called the marshmallow experiment. Ah, yes, this is very famous, isn't it? Yeah, kids were given a marshmallow and they were told that that was their marshmallow. And they could eat it if they wanted to. But if they could wait a few minutes while the lady went out of the room, when they came back, they'd get another marshmallow. So if they could delay gratification, they would actually get a, a reward. And they found roughly that a third of the children ate it pretty quickly. A third managed to hold on for some time, but then succumbed. And a third actually stuck it out. And they've managed to follow up 96% of these for about 30 plus years. And what they've shown is that the youngsters who resisted the temptation got better uh, SAT scores, they had better academic achievement, they had better success as adults, both in terms of relationships, and they were less likely to have addictive problems. So this seemed to be a prognosticator what they discovered was it wasn't willpower. The ones who were able to focus away from the marshmallow and think about something else, right. do something else. So they took their attention away from the marshmallow. They were much less likely to eat the marshmallow. So if you have the ability to control where your attention is focused, it's going to benefit you greatly. Absolutely. I think on average I look at my phone maybe every hour or so. Wherever I'm working, I'll have the phone right next to me sort of face up with the screen open 
but I would say maybe on average I might look at that phone every half an hour. I think I look at my phone about a hundred times a day, but it's always kind of when I'm don't really have anything else to do, which maybe I don't have much to do all day. I probably check my phone twice a minute, if not more. <laughs> Sometimes the light reflects off it, and I think someone's texted me. Probably every time my hands are not touching something else, that'll be that sounds really weird. I'm gonna I'm gonna just yeah stop right there. I was actually thinking about this the other day, how often people unlock it like what are we doing are we checking that it still works because it, it's gonna still work <laughs> once i kind of have time to myself to just kind of be with my thoughts then i'll go to my phone because i don't want to be alone with my thoughts when i'm walking along it's in my pocket and it's almost like some weird like attachment relationship where just touching it makes me feel happy so when we're talking about attention we kind of have to touch upon the fact that now in the 21st century there is so much vying for our attention, particularly with phones and tech advancements. How do we cope with that? I think that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of the things that are capturing our attention are designed to capture our attention. They send us prompts, they they stimulate us. And there's an issue here. I mean, Larry Rosen, who's a professor in America, has looked at this in some detail. And what he's shown is that a lot of people actually almost develop a sort of obsessive compulsive process so they have an intrusive thought you know has someone seen my post on facebook has someone responded to my text uh and that thought then reconnects them with their machine so they have feel compelled to turn their machine on again and the data now shows that that you know youngsters and adults under the age of 50 are using or checking their phone roughly every 15 minutes and some people constantly they don't actually let go of it. Now, what impact does that have on on cognitive function and learning? I think Larry Rosen argues that if you're getting distracted and you're trying to multitask, it does impact on the capacity to properly learn things. Is it quite an energy-hungry process as well, being distracted? Switching is incredibly exhausting. It's very energy-hungry. So our brain likes to stay focused on something, but then if it has to switch focus, you get this significant downturn in ability to focus and learn. I was watching a documentary the other night made by Bruce Parry, the guy from Tribe, and he went and spent time with a tribe, the Penan people, and he went out hunting with them, and they go out and they have their blow darts and stuff. And he said that the level of focus that they have on their surroundings. They're so in tune with every sound and, and every movement. There's no distraction at all. And that's what enables them to hunt successfully. And he was trying to do it. And he said he just couldn't, as much as he was trying just to look at the forest, just to be in the present at that moment. He just found his mind would just be going off on tangents and kind of thinking about, I wonder what we'll be doing later on or whatever it is. And he was unable to focus on the tasks that he wanted to, but the guy that he was with, 100% focused. So I thought that was really interesting because I wondered if it kind of said something about our minds now in the 21st century versus a tribe who don't have that level of distraction. I think that's really true. We've grown up in an environment that has been incredibly stimulating and our attention's flipping into all sorts of things all of the time. And also, much as I am interrupted by external stimuli, so whether that is my phone buzzing, 
or whatever, the thing that interrupts me the most is actually my own thoughts. Is that normal? I think it's very normal. And in fact, actually, I think it's quite a good thing to happen. What Daniel Levitin talks about is the executive network. But we also need to go into the default network. And the default network is the mind-wandering network. And what's been shown is if you use your executive network to focus on something, what can happen is that after about 50, 60 minutes in an adult, we start to actually read the same line a few times. We start to look out of the window. We start to lose concentration. It's much less than that for me, by the way, Brian. I mean, if, if I do 20 minutes, I'm delighted. <laughs> um, and what he argues is that we need to go into that default state because what happens in that mind-wandering bit is you often get, you join up things that you wouldn't join up in your executive network. So this is what Einstein called his eureka moments, that he never had his best ideas in the laboratory. He had his best ideas when he was in the shower or having a cold beer or playing the violin. So we shouldn't obstruct mind wandering. Oh, that's good news for me. What about when the thoughts that are hijacking the thing that I want to be focused on are anxious ones? Yeah. I think neutral thoughts are much easier to park. So if we have a thought about something that we're, we're not particularly bothered by, you know, where Mr. Barnier goes on holiday, actually that drifts off into the ether quite quickly because it's got no importance for us. But having a thought that is worrying hijacks our attention very, very easily. And once it's hijacked our attention, if it makes us anxious, it starts to change the way we think. So we start to have more irrational, distorted and catastrophic thoughts and start to ruminate. Yeah, I think I definitely do that, turns out. I guess we probably all do. We do. One man who knows all about this is expert in ruminative thinking, clinical psychologist Professor Ed Watkins. Ruminative thinking is the tendency for people to repetitively think over and over and over again about upsetting and difficult events. It's something that everyone does. It's a normal process, but it gets more exaggerated and more out of control when people are more at risk for depression. So where it happens for all of us is when something doesn't go to plan or something that's important to us doesn't happen. For example, the end of a relationship or if you lose a job, it's a natural thing that you would spend time thinking about that. What happens when people get more prone to depression is that tendency seems to get linked to more day-to-day -day events and to people's mood. So just feeling a bit sad or a bit low looks like it triggers off that tendency to, to keep thinking about why are things happening and why are things so difficult. So there's a lot of debate as to how different or similar worry and ruminative thinking is. I mean, what's typically talked about as worry tends to be more about threat and things that can happen in the future. So worrying about what if this terrible thing happens to me? So worrying what if my kid has an accident at school or what if I can't pay the bills or whatever. Whereas rumination tends to be more about the meaning of things that have happened or could be happening at the moment. So, you know, why did this terrible thing happen to me? And in practical terms, in the clinic, when we're working with patients with anxiety and depression, it's really hard to separate them. So Thinking about what's just happened in the past easily flows into worrying about what could happen in the future and vice versa. Um, so we think it's easiest to think of them as the same mechanism with just slightly different content. If you're ruminating about something, unless what you're ruminating about happens to be the same thing that you're trying to focus on, you're probably not going to be focused um, because you're going to be distracted uh, and you're going to have all these other things going on in your mind rather than what you're trying to focus on. More than that, 
one of the things that happens in rumination is that people are getting abstracted away from the detail of what's happening. So if I'm trying to do a task, instead of being in the task and focused on the task, and paying attention to the task, if I'm ruminating about the task, then I'm thinking about how well am I doing? Why can't I do this as well as I last did it? Or why is someone else finding it easier? All of which means I'm not going to be paying as much attention to actually doing the task. So it's going to completely disrupt focus. So it's pretty much the opposite counter to focus. So um, one of the things we're interested in depression is something called overgeneral autobiographical memory. So this is a tendency when you ask people to think of a specific time at a particular place. We find that people who are depressed find that harder to do than people who aren't depressed. So if you give someone the word happy, you will tell me about a particular event that happened recently. So, you know, going to the pub with your friends on Friday. But someone who's depressed might just come up with a generic category, oh, going to the park. And this is quite an interesting phenomenon because it seems to be something that predicts the, the likelihood of people staying depressed. What we found was that when you get people to ruminate in the lab, you ask them to repetitively think about how they're feeling and why they're feeling that way. That seems to be one of the things that's maintaining this tendency to be overgeneral in memory. And if you can distract them from rumination, people's memories get more specific. So there are obvious problems with wandering thoughts and, and distractions and rumination, but how can we adjust our focus? So is it fair to say then that the power to move our attention from, from one thing to something else of our choosing is quite key to our well-being? I think that's the main taking from the, the marshmallow study. And I think that people who can actually decide what they pay attention to, it can be really helpful. You know, I, I quite enjoy, I, in fact, I love having a shower, uh, but often I'm not in the shower. I'm actually thinking about which exit I'm going to take off the M25 or what I'm doing later that day. And I think just to actually bring yourself back and to anchor yourself for a few moments can be an incredibly therapeutic process. And how easily can we decide to decide? Are some people just better at it? I think so. And I think if you look at attentional deficit disorder, some of us during our formative years were very easily distracted, found classrooms boring. And we all know people who we went through school with who, who seemed to be able to pay attention all the time and listen, whereas others were looking out of the window and thinking about lunch. I find these days in particular that my ability to focus is so brief. So it used to be that I thought, OK, when I'm writing books, I sit down, write for an hour, then have a 15-minute break, then, then go back. I just can't do an hour. I can do 20 minutes and then I have to have a 10-minute break and I just have to accept that. But even within that 20 minutes, I don't feel like I'm fully concentrated. Is there any way of kind of lengthening that time? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, this is Larry Rosen's work in America. What they've shown is that the average medical student that he was uh, teaching and assessing, actually their concentration span is about five minutes before they get distracted. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Makes me feel much better. <laughs> so what he did was he got them to focus for a certain period of time and then about five or six minutes and then he got them to take a short break and then they come back and they focus for five or six minutes. But over a period of time, he slowly extended the length of time they were focusing. So this is like training a muscle. So I think the takeaway here then is that we all have the power to change what we focus on, to disengage from 
counterproductive thoughts and engage in productive ones. But if you feel like you need a little help finding this power, Positive Group are here, aren't they? They're here for you, Brian. They certainly are. The main things I worry about are doing badly in social situations, reacting poorly in social situations. It's probably that I've put on a bit of weight. quite like to lose some weight. Um, <laughs> is my room tidy? Am I going to be late for work? The other day at work, I posted something on social media when I shouldn't have done. And then 10 seconds after I realised I shouldn't have posted it, I was out of a job, I was living on the street, and I put on loads of weight, obviously, and I wasn't talking to my mum anymore. Recently bought a very expensive perfume. I found myself worrying the other day that no one could smell it, which is just completely ridiculous. And so what tools do you have that help, Brian? Positive Group has been developing two tools to help maintain attentional focus. And the two tools are Positive Switch and Worry Filter. So the Positive Switch is a powerful cognitive tool for shifting your attention, the focus of your attention, from one area to another. So when we're worrying, when we're ruminating, when we're angry, we get stuck in a pattern of thinking. If we can change what we're paying attention to, we can shift our mood. Hmm. The best way to use this tool is to become aware of what you're using your mind for. Once you're aware of what you're doing, you can then decide to flip the switch. So in its broadest sense, it's rather like changing the channel on the TV. Hmm. But I think the other technique that I would mention is around worry. Most of us worry, uh, but it's estimated that the vast majority of things we worry about never happen. So I think dividing your worries into two types. One is useful worries. And actually, most of us like useful worries because there's a solution attached to them. And it's very useful because when you've done all the checklist, you get a little squirt of dopamine in your brain, you feel good, and it's sorted out. The danger is that we worry about things that we can't influence. You know, will the plane be late? Uh, will we get hijacked? You know, will, will, I, will I lose my luggage? Those worries, actually, you have no influence over. So what the brain does with useless worries is it brings them into focus, it starts to attend to them, and we can find ourselves going over and over them, but we can't find a solution. So they go back onto the to-do list, and the brain hates that because it's unfinished business and it's exhausting. And being able to let go of those worries is a really helpful process. And so this is a, a worry filter then. It you're is. kind of saying, take a step back, coolly look at the thing that you're worrying about. Is there a solution? Can you have an effect on this? If so, great, go off and figure it out. But if you can't, just let it go. That's correct. I think that's really important technique. I mean, we've only got a certain quantum of energy. And I think using your energy to worry about Mr. Trump uh, or to worry about global warming is actually not going to influence global warming or Mr. Trump. And you could find yourself getting very, very tired. Mm. But equally, if everyone thought like that, then no one would do anything to try and tackle something like climate change. But I guess there are some people who think, oh, actually, this is a worry that I can do something about because I'm in a position that means I can. Absolutely. And I think if, if you take global warming, you think, okay, well, what can I do? I can actually recycle things. I can have a smaller carbon footprint. I can actually make a difference myself. And I'm going to do all those things. But the idea that you can influence what another nation decides to do, be that the US or another, 
is, is a huge waste of your energy because you will not influence American policy on global warming. Speak for yourself, Brian. <laughs> I intend to. Just so you wait until I get started on the Chinese. <laughs> As always, you can get more information about both of those tools by visiting positivegroup.org. This episode of Pi was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Brian Marion, and featured clinical psychologist Professor Ed Watkins. It was produced by L. Scott, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. Positive Group worked with organisations including schools and universities, as well as supporting parents and individuals to improve their skills in building and sustaining psychological well-being. If you want to find out more about the work of Positive, go to positivegroup.org. <laughs>